Well, you'll be helped if you have your Bible open to Jude throughout the entire sermon, uh, because today I'm surveying the entire book, and and I want to emphasize the word survey. You know, we're not going to deep dive for a lot of the verses, or and I'm not going to touch on every phrase throughout the book, but but I want to give you a sense for the whole. So we'll fly at a pretty high level this morning. And uh, again, you'll be helped if you have your Bible open throughout the whole sermon. Hopefully that's your pr- regular practice anyway, but especially I think today it'll be helpful if you, if you keep it open. Uh, I want to just say at the outset that overviewing books of the Bible can be a helpful exercise for you. Uh, whenever you want to do your own Bible study, it's a really helpful practice to read through the entire book that you want to study in maybe one or two sittings. Uh, because sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees. Uh, sometimes we can focus so much on one verse, or a couple of verses even, that we miss, we miss really the main emphases of the book as a whole. So, of course, Jude is a very short book. Stephanie just read it all. Very short. Uh, there are a lot longer ones in the Bible. But, but this, this particular one, I think we can survey it in, uh, in one sermon, as it were. And, 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 I, and I think that can be very helpful, uh, just to get a sense for the whole the reason I chose Jude in particular is because it is underappreciated, I think, uh, in the books, uh, among the books of the Bible. I am happy to hear the women's Bible study this summer actually covered the book of Jude. So you women who were in that Bible study, you are already experts on this book. But if you weren't in that Bible study, like perhaps many of you weren't, uh, this, is, this is typically one of those books that you don't read. Maybe you'll read one of the Gospels, you read one of Paul's letters, especially Romans or 1 Corinthians or something along those lines. But Jude may not be your go-to book in the Bible. There was an article that came out in 1975, a very long time ago now, and uh, the article title was The Most Neglected Book in the New Testament, and it was about Jude. And I think uh, that article is largely right today in terms of that title. Jude is not a go-to book for many Christians. I, I hope to show you there are treasures here uh, in, in Jude. It is among the shortest, of course, of the books of the Bible. It's difficult in part because it forces you to know your Old Testament. I don't know if you were listening when Stephanie was reading. A lot of Jude assumes that you know your Old Testament. And for some Christians who don't read the Old Testament very often, or they're just not very familiar with the Old Testament, Jude can feel very alien to them because he assumes you know these examples that I'm talking about from the Old Testament. So we'll walk through those today. But if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, it's going to be a pretty hard book. Also, there are some extra canonical references. By that, I mean he alludes, I think twice, to books that are not in the Bible, but he knows his audience is familiar with. And that can be a challenge for us if we're not familiar with those books or stories ourselves. Jude, I'm not going to say very much about the background of Jude. Jude, I think, with the majority of scholars, was the half-brother of Jesus. I think the same thing is true with James. If you look in Matthew 13 and Mark chapter 6, Jesus has four half-brothers named. One is James, and one is Jude or Judas or Judah. It's all the same name. And uh, here he's going by the name of Jude. He doesn't call himself a brother of Jesus in the letter. Notice in verse 1, he calls himself a servant of Jesus, which I think is, is a good model for us. 
Even though he was the biological half-brother of our Lord Jesus himself, he calls himself a servant of Jesus. I think you see his humility here shining through. Notice he also calls himself the brother of James. Again, they are, they are brothers, aren't they, even biologically? Why did Jude write this letter? Well, I'll say more about this in just a moment. But the modern way of saying the reason he wrote the letter is, I think Jude was facing a group of people in the church who were arguing, you do you. That's, that's, that's the modern way of saying it. The phrase, you do you, is not in the Bible as far as I know. But today, there are some people who basically say, the life of Christianity is you do you, you be whoever you want to be, and whatever it is is great because it's you doing you, or something along those lines. Of course, in some sense, that can be a helpful thing to say and believe. But in some sense, of course, that's really dangerous, isn't it? Because sometimes what you want to do is sinful and not pleasing to the Lord. So it's not good to do you do you all the time. I think Jude was facing a group of people who were arguing in the church, you do you. Whatever's right to you, do it. It's awesome. And Jude writes this letter, guys, we've got to contend for the faith is what he says. With that, I have a major or massive big idea. And this is my summary statement uh, for the letter as a whole. So I, I don't know if all this you'll get. We'll walk through the book, so hopefully you'll get it by the end of the sermon. But at the outset, I want to state to you my summary of the letter, okay? And this is it. We should contend for the faith because... Some distort the grace of God. We should contend for the faith because some distort the grace of God. We should contend for the faith by doing four things. Number one, remembering the character of sin and the certainty of judgment. Number two, keeping ourselves in God's love by faith. Number three, by showing mercy to doubters. And number four, by remembering or recalling God's power and the hope of the gospel. That was way too much for any of you to write down, you sermon note takers. But I think that's Jude in a nutshell. In other words, there's just one main idea for you to do, for us to do. And that is to contend for the faith. That's in verse 3. The reason is in verse 4, because some are distorting the grace of God. And how to do that, he gives us four ways. He elaborates, or four considerations. Number one, again, we have to remember the character of sin and the certainty of judgment. Number two, we have to keep ourselves in God's love by faith. Number three, we want to show mercy to doubters. And number four, we want to recall God's power and the hope of the gospel. So, if you didn't get all that, don't worry. We're going to walk, we're going to walk through it. So number one, um, even before we get to the considerations, I just want to talk briefly about this main point in verse 3. I want to read verse 3 and verse 4 again. Beloved, he says, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So verse 3 says, 
He planned on writing another letter. Do you see that in verse 3? Verse 3 says, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So Jude's telling him, I wanted to write to you a letter about our salvation, our common salvation. But notice the word although. Even though that was the case, I had my own plans, I I found it necessary, verse 3 says, to write to you about something else. I found it necessary to write to you, he says, appealing to you to contend for the faith. So what's, what's, he, what's he driving at? He wants them to contend for the faith. He had in mind to write on something else, our common salvation, but instead, in the province of God, I think you see the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, the Holy Spirit impressed upon his heart to write about this instead, to contend for the faith. And this is the letter in God's providence that was... Uh, uh, preserved for us through the centuries in our Bibles. Now, we might say, Jude, you know, a letter on our common salvation would have been really nice, right? (laughs) So, why? Why did you find it necessary to to appeal to us, right, Jude? Why? And look at verse 4. You tell me, what's the first word in verse 4? Does everyone see the word for? It, it, It should be there. The word for, it's in the Greek, you know that that tells you verse 4 gives you the reason for verse 3. So so the why question is answered by verse 4. Why, Jude, did you change your mind? Because of verse 4. Certain people, he doesn't name them, does he? He says certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Do they sound like nice people? I mean, the creeping language, unnoticed language, perverting the gospel language, ungodly language, denying Jesus as Lord language. These are bad people, aren't they? But where are they? He says they've crept in. I take it to the church. These people are in the church. Again, he doesn't name them. He just says certain people have come into the church. And presumably the word unnoticed doesn't mean they're invisible. You can't see them. That's not not what unnoticed means. It means people see them there in the church, but they don't recognize that they are ungodly. They don't see them for who they really are. And in that sense, they're unnoticed. And this, of course, is a danger in every church in the world, right? Every church has to watch out for such people who are actually, I think Paul would call them, wolves in sheep's clothing. They're wolves, aren't they? But they look like sheep. They might sound right. They might say some good things. And so they deceive people in the church. And and by that, he means they've crept in unnoticed. What particularly is wrong with these people? Of course, their behavior, their behavior is here because they're called ungodly. Did you see the word sensuality? That's a fancy way of saying, I think they're saying, you do you. They're perverting, that word pervert is there in verse 4, they're perverting the grace of our God and they're changing it into sensuality. In other words, they're preaching or teaching the gospel is your ticket. The gospel of grace is your ticket to live in sensual ways. And if that's your gospel, in effect, verse 4 says, 
they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the argument? If you get the grace of God wrong and think of it as a ticket for you to live with sensuality, essentially do whatever makes you feel good or something like that, that in effect makes you the Lord of your own life, doesn't it? You are your own boss. That's what your gospel is. And that in effect says Jesus isn't the Lord of your life. It's a denial of the only master and Lord that we have. I think, there's some speculation here, but I think that Jude is fighting against people that Paul had to fight. If you remember back to the letter of Romans, Romans 6 in particular, Paul asks the question that I think some people had been asking him, should we sin all the more that grace might increase? Do you remember that from Romans 6 at the outset? Maybe the gospel of grace means, since all my sins will be forgiven anyway, God's grace is so deep that I should just run into sin. Headlong, rush into sin. Isn't that what the gospel means or brings us? And, And Paul, of course, says, may it never be, Romans 6. And here I think Jude is saying, if that's the gospel of grace, it's no gospel at all. It's it's not Christian in any sense. Rather, the gospel according to Jude entails not only forgiveness, but as we'll see in a little bit, God's forgiveness of us is powerful. His word is a declaration that actually brings something into effect, namely new life. And the new life that we have is with Christ. It's with Christ Jesus our Lord. So that God's grace, you can put it this way, unites us to Christ. It unites us to Christ. And if you're united to Christ, you can't go on living as though you weren't. You see? You are in league now with a new master. Sin shall no longer be your master. Jesus is your master. And therefore, necessarily grace will have its proper effect in your life. It'll be like newness of life. Well, so because of this problem of a twisting of the gospel of grace, then Jude says we should contend for the faith. That word contend in verse 3 is an effort word. So you have to contend uh, it's, it's not a passive word. It's an active effort word. It's, it's, an in, it's a word that indicates even like a struggle. Think like gladiatorial games or maybe ancient Olympic uh, marathons or something like that. It's not an easy word. It's a hard, it's going to be a hard thing to do kind of word. And I think that this shows us that Jude doesn't think it's easy. Do you see that? Jude doesn't think that it's easy to get the gospel right. Sometimes I think we can forget that, that you know, the, the human condition is what it is. Sometimes we can forget that the gospel is uh, something that's easily forgotten. The, the gospel is something that's easily twisted. The gospel is something that's easily perverted. And so, this is a great reminder for us, let's contend for the faith. This is a worthy struggle to contend for the faith. Because it is, notice, the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints. That's quite a descriptor of the faith. I think the faith here is just the gospel. But the once for all delivered to the saints language heightens the significance of contending for it. 
We, we have to contend for that because it has been handed down in a once-for-all kind of way, which is, I think, definitive language. The faith isn't just an opinion of human beings. It's a, it's a body of doctrine that has been handed down for us. Why is it once for all? I think it's because it's from Jesus himself. Jesus is the source and the basis for the gospel. And because of who he is, in that sense, it's once for all and can't be changed. It's like the laws of the Medes and the Persians here. It's set in stone. You're not going to change the gospel. It is what it is. It's not a social construct. The gospel is not subject to the whims of society. The gospel is what it is. It's definitive. It's, it's climactic and final because it came from Jesus himself. And it was delivered, it says, to the saints. Did you see that? Who are these people, the saints? Well, it's us, isn't it? It's Christians of all times and all places. Do you know what this means? This means, I think, two things. Number one, if you are a Christian, you do believe the faith that was once delivered or handed down to you. So I think this shows us that the saints believe the faith, but it also means it's the prerogative and the responsibility of us as saints of the Lord Jesus to contend for the faith. Some Christians think maybe it's just the elder's job to contend for the faith. Maybe it's just church leadership's job to contend for the faith. Maybe it's just the job of theologian types or seminary types to contend for the faith. But actually, he says the saints here are the ones who have received the faith, handed down from Jesus through the apostles, and it is therefore on you, it is therefore on us, isn't it, to make sure that we collectively, as a church, get the gospel right. And if we lose the gospel, we shouldn't, we shouldn't point fingers at anyone except for ourselves, do you see? The gospel has been transmitted or handed down to every Christian of all times and places. I want to say here, just by way of application, uh, some things in the world are not worth fighting for. Not every hill should be died upon, but the gospel is a hill, it is the hill worth dying on. It is the thing that you must contend for. I mean, we struggle for a lot of things, don't we, in life? If you struggle for nothing, at least struggle for the gospel. At least, at least struggle for the gospel. That is a worthy way to spend 80 years of life contending for the faith. I think in a phrase, this is the mission of the church. What should our church be about? It should be a contending for the faith church. If we as Trinity Bible Church don't contend for it, we will lose it. No doubt, we will lose it. The gospel is not easily preserved. It does take effort, it takes strategizing, it takes prayerfulness, watchfulness in order to preserve right doctrine and to make sure that that right doctrine is instilled in our, in our hearts and believed. So whenever you hear someone say, you know what, I've heard enough of the gospel, let's just move on to something else, you should kindly show them mercy and say, but the gospel is what we're about. That's what we're about. Satan has his arrows aimed at us, like he does at every church. And you know what his bullseye is? I think his bullseye is a distortion of the gospel. 
If he can distort the gospel, he's got us. So let's make it our aim as we fight against him to make sure that the gospel is never distorted. And that means, of course, very basically, talking about it, preaching about it, singing about it. When we pray, we pray gospel stuff, don't we? When you see a baptism, I want you to think about the gospel. Isn't it a picture of of the gospel? When we take communion together, as often as we do, let's make sure we're celebrating the gospel because that's what the table is all about. If we don't do that, then we won't contend for it very well. And if we don't contend for it very well, we'll lose it. So that's the main idea. That's the big idea. Let's contend for the faith because some distort the gospel of God. The rest of Jude is, it gives us four points, and I'm going to go through these pretty fast, four considerations, uh, if you will. And these four considerations in Jude are going to help us know either how to contend well or why we have to contend well. It's either a how or a why. The first of the considerations is the longest. It actually covers 15 verses in the letter, so we'll spend the longest on that. But still, we're going to be pretty, moving pretty fast. So consideration number one. If we're going to contend for the faith, brothers and sisters, here's what we have to do. Number one, remember the character of sin and the certainty of judgment. That's number one. Remember the character of sin and the certainty of judgment. And this is the meat of the letter. If you look all the way from verses 5 through verse 19. It's 15 verses total from verses 5 through verse 19. Jude outlines over and over and over the character of sin and the certainty of judgment. And I I say, I think the consideration for us is to remember those things because if you look in verse 5, do you all see verse 5? Do you see the word remind there? He says in verse 5, now I want to remind you And then he goes on. I want you to look down the page to verse 17. Do you see the word remember? Verse 17 says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions. So so what's he doing from verses 5 all the way through verse 19? He's reminding them, isn't he? There's there's this remember language. Verses 5 through 16 is all remember stuff that it was in the long distant past. Uh, the stuff of antiquity uh, in the Old Testament. So he gives lots of examples from the Old Testament, verses 5 through 16. And then verse 17, with the second remember, verses 17, 18, and 19, he comes to the near distant past, or not very distant past. He talks about the predictions of the apostles. And of course, that's first generation predictions then. So the, so the, the whole meat section there can be divided into two sections, really. One is a remember in the far distant past, all these examples. And then the second remember is remember our own generation, the apostles themselves said certain things. But the point of those two sections, I think, is the same because in both you see the character of sin and in both you see the certainty of final judgment. Why does he spend so long talking about the character of sin and the certainty of judgment? I mean, this is like two-thirds of his letter, right, spent on this issue. And I think the reason why is because he knows we as a church will contend a lot better for the faith if we can see 
the true character of sin. You know, we've been talking about temptation uh, all summer. And, and a lot of the way temptation works in our hearts is if we start believing that sin is good for us, well, that's, there's your temptation, right? A lot of it has to do with what you believe. And, of course, you're believing a lie if you believe temptation is good for you, that particular sin. So Jude is saying, look, you'll contend really well for the faith if you just look at sin for all of its ugliness. You'll see it, and you'll run from it. It'll be really easy to contend for the faith. Sometimes, we Christians, we forget sin's terrible. Sin is so nasty and ugly. I also think that in this section, Jude chooses the examples he chooses because he wants to align the false teachers with those ancient examples of sin. If you go to the Old Testament, guys, there's a bunch of bad examples to choose from. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Old Testament is fraught with negative examples of sin. Why does he choose to talk about these examples? I think because he thinks the false teachers are a lot like those examples, and he wants to align them with those examples. I don't think that means the false teachers in every way correspond to those ancient examples of sin, but I think in many ways they correspond, and I'll try to draw out some of those. All right, with that, let's run through verses 5 through 19. Verse 5 says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And we'll stop there. So verse 5 has an example, verse 6 has an example, verse 7 has an example. And uh, we'll we'll, we'll just walk through these quickly. Verse 5 talks about the people of Israel coming out of Egypt. We all know that story. They were in Egypt. They were saved out of Egypt, which is a great act of redemption on the part of God. But notice verse 5 says, they were afterward destroyed who did not believe. Do you see that? So what's their sin? They didn't believe. They didn't believe God, did they? And there's lots of examples, especially in Exodus and Numbers, about that. So, so they have unbelief. They have, they have hearts of unbelief. In verse 6, angels are talked about. Particularly, it says the angels did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. Whoever these angels are, what's their sin? They didn't stay where they were supposed to stay. They left their proper dwelling. I think this means that they rejected God's authority over their life. God says, this is your proper dwelling. And they said, no, thank you. We're going to leave our proper dwelling. So it's a throwing off of God's authority over their life. You know, there's great debate on which angels are these, right? And uh, I don't think we need to get bogged down there. Uh, some people think that it's, it's all of the fallen angels called demons Uh, I'm actually not inclined to think that, but maybe that's right. There's another view that thinks the the sons of God in Genesis 6, uh, you can read about that story at the beginning of Genesis 6, are actually a code in the Old Testament for angels, which is certainly the case in other texts. Whatever the case may be, it's clear these are not righteous angels. These are angels who have rejected God's authority, and 
and therefore have been placed into a holding cell of sorts until the final judgment. Verse 7 talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah is a very famous example from the Old Testament about sexual immorality. You can read about that story in Genesis chapter 19. So I think these three examples, you have the wilderness generation in verse 5, you have the sexual immorality in verse 7 of Sodom and Gomorrah, and in the middle, you have the angels who left their proper dwelling. I think these three groups together illustrate the kind of sin that the false teachers are engaging in. Number one, they don't believe. Like the wilderness generation, they're filled with unbelief. Number two, they've rejected God's authority from their life. That fits really well with verse four. Verse four says they've denied their only master and Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's the you do you stuff, right? Well, that's, that's like the angels in verse six, isn't it? And then verse seven, I don't think that they were like Sodom and Gomorrah, these false teachers, in every way, but I do think there's evidence here to suggest that they're living in sexually immoral ways in some way. It's hard to know exactly what that was. He doesn't go into any details. But their immorality, I think, is, is the a level of correspondence here. Notice in verse 8, the false teachers are then commented on in ways that align them with the sins of verses 5, 6, and 7. So verse 8 says, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. I think those three phrases, notice they defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones, correspond to the three examples that he just gave in verses 5, 6, and 7. They defile the flesh like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, the word flesh wasn't in the English translation of verse 7, but it's there in the Greek. I think there's a connection between verses 7 and 8. They defile the flesh like Sodom and Gomorrah did, at least in a general, in a general sense. Also, notice in verse 8, it says they reject authority. Who does that sound like? The angels, right? We just saw that. And then they blaspheme the glorious ones. You know, the, the blasphemy language... I think not only sounds a lot like Israel in the Old Testament, in the, in, in the wilderness uh, generation, but also it points forward to the next example he wants to talk about, which is the example of Michael, the archangel. You see that in verse 9? It says, When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. The word blaspheme is in verse 8, 9, and 10, isn't it? So the word blaspheme is is catching those verses together. Well, what are the false teachers doing? It says at the very end of verse 8, they're blaspheming the glorious ones. I think that's the angels. It's hard to know exactly why they're doing that. We don't need to engage in that now. But the point is, they're blaspheming angelic beings. And then in verse 10, it says these people, as the false teachers, blaspheme all that they do not understand. We'll stop right there. These people are talking, they're slandering things that they don't even know beans of what they're talking about. They're blaspheming, but they have no idea what they're saying. They have no idea anything about these angelic beings that they're blaspheming. You know what they do understand? Verse 10 says, Well, they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Oh, these people have instincts. 
Do you know what their instincts are like unreasoning animals? They do whatever they feel like doing. That's the way animals are, right? Animals just feel like, I don't know, eating that thing over there, so I think I'll go do it, right? That's the way these people are like. They don't know beans about heavenly things, but they know about doing what makes them feel good. Oh, it's real. They know all about that, you see? And they're destroyed by those instincts. Verse 9 is challenging with the archangel Michael. The story here, we're not quite sure where it comes from. So I, just, I, I don't want to spend very long here, but I should say something about it. The story about Michael, who's, a, who's the archangel, he's like a warrior angel. Uh, his story of contending with the devil about the body of Moses is not found in the Old Testament. So it's really a challenge to understand what, where's Jude going here with the story. Deuteronomy 34, of course, tells us about Moses' death, if you remember that. But it actually doesn't tell us the burial place uh, of Moses' body. The story itself about Michael and the devil disputing about the body of Moses is not found in any source, uh, in any document today. Uh, Some early Christians uh, were aware of this story, and they said it was part of a book called The Assumption of Moses— We don't have a book called The Assumption of Moses today. It's not been found. However, we do have a book called The Testament of Moses. It's not in the Bible. shouldn't be in the Bible. Nobody thinks so. Nobody should think so. Nevertheless, some people think the story may have been like the ending of that particular book. It's hard to know for certain. So it's really, frankly, it's hard to know, right? Where's Jude going in verse 9? So I'll tell you what I think, but it's kind of speculative, okay? It's not clear why there was a dispute uh, over the body of Moses, but it may have had something to do with uh, whether Moses' body should have an honorable burial. Why would that be in question? Because Moses killed the Egyptian. Do you remember the story back from Exodus chapter 2? Moses killed the Egyptian, and he was, um, even though I think he was doing it out of a good heart, he could have been called a murderer for such things. And, of course, he had to run away from Pharaoh for, uh, uh, for doing that. So it's possible that whether Moses was really a righteous man, whether Moses' body would uh, have been subject to a, a, an honorable burial, was engraved out. And the devil, as it were, was accusing Moses of his sin. And what does Michael say in verse 9? It says, when Michael was contending with the devil about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So what's Michael's answer? Michael says to the devil, it's not for me, it's not for me to say whether or not finally Moses should be vindicated, but it's the Lord's prerogative to clean him up, as it were, from his sin. There is a text in the Old Testament, Zechariah 3, which is alluded to here. See if you can follow me here. Joshua is the high priest in Zechariah 3. Do you you know the story? He has dirty clothes. If you don't know Zechariah 3, read it this afternoon. The gospel's all over Zechariah 3. Joshua is the high priest. Man, he is filthy before God. And he's got Satan there at his right hand, and the angel of the Lord is there, and they're disputing about Joshua. Doesn't that sound similar to this verse? The dispute over this person for their sin. And Satan is accusing Joshua of his sin because he's wearing filthy garments. And Zechariah 3, 2 has this statement. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. 
The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And then Joshua is given a new change of clothes that are pure as a sign that his sin has been taken away and his iniquity is atoned for. So the Lord rebukes the devil in Zechariah 3 as a sign that it is the Lord's prerogative to deal with Joshua the high priest's sin to clean up and to purify those whom he has chosen. It is the Lord who is the final judge, isn't he? I think that's actually the main point of verse 9 back to Jude. I think Michael knows, even though he's an archangel, it is not himself who is the final judge. And I think that's the main point. That's why Jude uses it. Jude says, here's an archangel. Of all people, you might be tempted to think this guy's the final judge, right? Because he's an archangel. Amazing archangel here. But even Michael says to the devil, it's not for me to say, rather, it is the Lord who rebukes you, and it's the Lord who cleans Moses up. I don't think the argument is that Moses was sinless, but that it is the Lord who can deal definitively with his sin. Well, if you're curious about that, see me after the service, but I think we should move on. Well, there's three more negative examples in verse 11, and uh, I'm going to summarize real fast verses 11 through 19, see if you can stay with me. Uh, You have in verse 11 three examples from the Old Testament again. Woe to them, it says, for they walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. They perished in Korah's rebellion. These three individuals, Cain, Balaam, and Korah, are all ancient enemies of God and God's people. And here, the false teachers are being aligned with that group. Furthermore, in verses 12 and 13, there are seven colorful descriptions of these false teachers. Very colorful. These are hidden reefs, verse 12 says, at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. These people are terrible, guys. (laughs) You never want that to be said of you. You are a waterless, fruitless tree. What does that tell you about these people? They might look good. They are deader than a doornail. They're twice uprooted. You've been waiting all harvest season, and they still haven't produced any fruit. Guys, it's hopeless, right? These people have no hope. They have no fruit forthcoming. Do not look to them for life. They're like stinking waterless clouds. You know, you're like, maybe it's going to rain today. Doesn't rain. Waterless clouds, right? I mean, this is, this is colorful language to describe. They have no life within themselves. They have no life. Rather, they're described as waves. Did you hear that? And wandering stars. That just means, wow, they're really unstable, aren't they? They're being tossed to and fro. And if you trust in them, you know what's going to happen to you? You get tossed to and fro too. You'll be in error. You'll be wandering as well. Moving on to... Verses uh, 14 and following, there's a prophecy here from Enoch about the Lord's judgment of the ungodly. I'll read verses 14 and 15. I want you to listen for the word ungodly in these words. It says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all 
and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do you hear the word ungodly? All over the place, right? We get the point. These people are ungodly, which he already said in verse 4, back up in Jude, Jude 4, but now he applies it in the prophecy of Enoch and says, the Lord's judgment comes against people like this. Why would you side with them? In verse 16, 17, and 18, their, their words especially are being talked about. Look, their, their words in verse 16, they're called grumblers malcontents, and they follow their own sinful desires. They're loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Bunch of cracks, these people, right? These people, they, 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 they say with their mouth, oh, we're so, we're so grumbled, right? We're so discontent about our, our lot in life. And the next phrase says, well, they just follow their own sinful desires. You see the irony there? This is what sin does to you. Sin makes you think, temptation makes you think, I'll be happy if I follow that particular sinful desire. And do you know what's going to happen? You'll be a grumbler, won't you? You'll be a malcontent. The the irony here, oh, the fates have, have, have not smiled upon us, they say. And they're just doing what they want. Sin does not lead to happiness. Holiness leads to happiness. They're called scoffers in verse 18. Did you see that? The, the apostles themselves say, in the last days or in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. And verse 19 says, it's these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. And that's the last thing he says about these people. I'm telling you, he just spends most of his letter talking about these people. Verse 19 is the end. And he says about these people, they belong to the world They belong to this age. They don't belong to the age to come, which is marked by the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit. My friends, if you ever wonder whether sin is bad, I think this is so clear. Read Jude 5 through 19. The character of sin is is outlined in great detail here from the Old Testament. Unbelief, rejection of God's authority, sexual immorality, a denial of of the things that are good and true and beautiful, which we know from God's word what those things are, a denial of that, and and you lifting up yourself to decide what those things are. Don't follow your own heart. It will mislead you. Follow, Follow the Lord. May he be your authority. So I think it's good just to stop here for a moment. I mean, we're, we spent a long time on that section, didn't we? Is there any anything in your heart that would say, maybe I'm one of these people who have crept in unnoticed. It is possible, right, in a congregation this size. Maybe you have thought of the gospel as a ticket to do what you want to do. Maybe you have rejected God's authority, and when you come across a verse that says clearly, this is what you should do, and you say, hmm, I'm going to do what I want to do. Forget that verse. Is that you? Well, if so, I just urge you to repent. You're still alive today, aren't you? By the grace of God. You're still alive. Repent and put away that sin. Believe the truth. That there's happiness where there's Christ. Well, we've also seen a lot in that section about the certainty of judgment. We're not going to walk back through the verses, but did you, did you hear the phrases? Verse 5 talks about 
the Israelite generation was destroyed when they came out of Egypt. Verse 6, those angels are in a holding cell for the great day of judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah was an example, it says, of the punishment of eternal fire. Do you believe that? That there's the punishment of eternal fire that they are an example for us of? Verse 11 has a progression, actually, where it talks about you walk according to the way of Cain, you abandon yourself like Balaam, and then you perish like Korah. Sin leads to death, doesn't it? All right. Well, that was a long time for consideration number one. Let me finish by giving you like two minutes on each of the final three considerations, okay? We're almost done. Praise the Lord. (laughs) So this is consideration number two. Keep yourself in God's love by faith. This is just verses 20 and 21. It says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So if we're going to contend for the faith well, he says in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's an active verb, isn't it? You keep yourself in the love of God. How do you do that? Uh, The rest of those two verses tell you how. Notice verse 20 talks about building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Verse 21 talks about waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is worth spending a long time on. I suggest that you think about ways that you can do this in your life. I just want to make one point here. Notice the activeness that is being called for is to keep yourself in the love of God. And we might be tempted to think, you know what Jude's calling me to do? He's, he's calling me to look within at the strength that I have so that way in my own strength I can keep myself in God's love. And if I make it to the heavenly kingdom, it's because I kept myself in God's love. Right? That's not what he says. He says if you want to keep yourself in God's love, which is that every active verb, then you have to look away from yourself. Look at the words in verse 20 and 21. It says, you build yourself up in your most holy faith. And prayer is fundamentally looking outside of yourself for divine strength, right? You do not keep yourself in the love of God by looking within. You keep yourself in the love of God, or as John 15 says, you remain in my love. By looking outside of yourself. Verse 21 talks about waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So you actively keep yourself in God's love by waiting for the second coming. All your eggs are in that basket, so to speak. This is faith and hope. That's how we keep ourselves in love. We don't turn ourselves into legalists here by keeping ourselves in God's love. Rather, we say It's only in the Lord that my righteousness is found. I boast only in him. And of course, this is a community effort. We keep ourselves, it says, in the love of God. So we are responsible as a church for one another, building one another up as a church body in the the faith. We pray together as a church body. We wait together for the Lord's return. The elders are responsible for leading us in this, and at the end of the day, it's all of our responsibility to follow their lead. 
A lot of good practical applications there. I suggest if you're part of a community group, that would be a great question for tonight or maybe another night, whenever you meet. You should talk about how can we build one another up in our most holy faith well? How can we pray together well? How can we wait together well? Because if you do that, you'll keep yourself in the love of God. All right, consideration number three. We show mercy to doubters. And this is in verses 22 and 23. It says, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So we contend for the faith well when we look at those who are on the fringe, the people who are doubters. At least they're called doubters in verse 22. And, and when we look at them, what should we do? It says have mercy, doesn't it? Mercy is actually used there twice, once in verse 22 and once in verse 23. So we show mercy. We show mercy. We don't say to them, see you later. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, <laughs> right? That's not what we say to those who are doubting. We say, in our mercy and compassion towards them, trust in the Lord. The types of things that we're talking about even this morning, we talk about these things with one another so that n- not one of us has an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. You know, showing mercy to someone means you love them enough to reach out to them when you see them in the danger zone. Do you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? We love them enough to reach out to them. It, it is not loving to see someone doubting in a danger zone and to say, well, it's not for me to say anything. That's not the mercy that Judah's calling for. That's not contending, is it, for the faith. That's doing nothing, actually. So if you see someone in the church, in the danger zone, I think it's not hard to see when this is the case, reach out to them. It doesn't matter how well you know them. Well, it kind of matters how well you know them. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, a, it's a community effort here, right? Maybe there's someone who knows them better, but I don't think you have to know them the best in order to be qualified to reach out to them. So this commends knowing one another well enough to know when one of us is in the danger zone, right? Do you stick around after the service is over, even when the preacher preaches way too long? I'll tell you what, maybe today we'll just all go to lunch together, okay? <laughs> right? Do you eat together? Do you get coffee together? Do you stick around after the service together? I don't know. This isn't rocket science, although I'm not very good at it. We reach out to one another, don't we? You might be in the danger zone if no one's reaching out to you and you're not reaching out to anyone. You might be in the danger zone and you might not even know it. So this is a community effort. We save one another, as it were, from the fire. And we do so, verse 23 says, with fear, I think that's the fear of the Lord, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. I'm not, I'm not good at this, but I think the principle here is when we reach out to one another, we do so in a way that doesn't taint ourselves with sin. And again, I'm, I'm not very good at that, frankly, but, but the principle is don't fight the fires of sin by engaging in little sins yourself. Don't do it. Don't justify little sins for the sake of ministry, I think is what Judah is saying. When you show mercy, do so with discernment in the fear of the Lord. Whatever you do, please the Lord, and don't gratify the flesh when you show mercy to others. All right, finally, consideration number four. Recall God's power and the hope of the gospel. 
This is actually the way Jude begins and ends his letter, the introduction and the conclusion. These brackets remind us that no matter what, when we contend for the faith, we're not alone. And this is so encouraging. Guys, if we were to contend for the faith on our own, we wouldn't do so well. There's just no chance that we would contend very well. We wouldn't show mercy, would we? We certainly wouldn't keep ourselves in the love of God. And yet, and yet we're not alone. Notice in the introduction, he calls us, in verse 1, three things. He says, you're called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. When you contend for the faith, I want you to think, I am called by God. I am beloved by God. I am kept by God for God. You're not alone. Isn't that so encouraging? And then in verse 2, Jude says, you guys need some prayer. So I'm going to pray for you. He prays three things. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And those are not accidental words that he prays. You see the word mercy there? It's the same word at the end of the letter when he says you need to show that mercy. He says you're not alone. I'm going to pray that you would have mercy from God so that you'll be able to show mercy toward others. Notice the conclusion in verse 24 and 25, which was one of the great doxologies uh, in the Bible. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Notice the doxology is, of course, to God, and it is to God for being able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his, great, of his uh, glory with great joy. This is so encouraging because if you and I are going to do what we should be called to do here in the book of Jude, that is to contend for the faith, it's only going to happen because of God's ability to keep us from stumbling. It's only going to happen because this doxology is true. Notice he doesn't say, now to you all who are able to keep yourselves in the love of God, does he? He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his glory with great joy, both his joy and our joy, I take it. So guys, I don't want you to leave today thinking, man, I've just got to do a better job, I'm looking within yourself if you're going to contend for the faith better, but rather I want you to remember things like the character of sin, so ugly, certainty of final judgments there. I want you to keep yourselves in the love of God by looking outside of yourself I want you to contend for the faith by showing mercy to those who are doubting. And I want you to recall the gospel that you are already called, beloved, and kept by God and for God. And that one day, because of his great ability and power, he's going to bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. And so in that spirit, we say to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray.